So right now there's a mentor of mine back east who is doesn't know this, but if he knew this, he would probably be chuckling a little bit uh, when I showed up in Connecticut with my iPad to preach from, and he said, I've never had a piece of paper stall out on me. And so here I am this morning with pieces of paper. Friends, we're in a series here on Jonah. This is the second week of the series. It's a four-week series, so each chapter uh, will be taken care of each week. And so last week was uh, chapter one that we shared with Southminster. And this week, uh, we enter into chapter two, and we'll be three and four in the following uh, weeks from here. It was 1977. Who remembers 1977 here? Anybody remember it? I don't. <laughs> I was three. <laughs> 1977. I think some big things happened in 1977, especially in the area of entertainment. Uh, and while performing at the Punk Festival uh, in London, uh, Mark Knopfler's uh, new band was looking for a name. And they played at that Punk Festival as the Cafe Racers. Any Cafe Racer fans here? No? No one knows who the Cafe Racers are. Like, who's that? Uh, it was the name of Mark's earlier band. Again, they were looking for, this new band was looking for a name. But a friend suggested to them in light of their lack of financial resources, that they should name themselves Dire Straits. Come on now. Got some Dire Straits fans out there. Of course, the rest is history with that, and it sounds like for some of you, it might be the present as well. I looked at the band's net worth this last week. They're no longer in Dire Straits. <laughs> but not Jonah. My man Jonah's in Dire Straits this week as we look at chapter two. The end of chapter one, of course, uh, has him being thrown overboard into the raging sea, right? He's thrown in there. Though the sailors, they pray that God would not hold them accountable, right? God, don't hold us accountable for throwing this guy in the sea. We want that we we're not responsible for his death. Only then is Jonah, as he's sinking, swallowed up by a great fish, as the story goes, that God sent to save Jonah from certain death. And as the story goes, today's reading comes from inside that fish. All right, so that's where this this week's text. Probably the strangest place to pray. I think you, some of you guys have prayed in some pretty strange places. Has anyone ever prayed in a very strange place? I bet it's not as strange as inside a fish. And here's Jonah praying inside the fish. But even so, today's reading moves us into a territory that's oftentimes passed over in the telling of this story to children. So perhaps I might begin here as we get into the, the actual text itself with a, a bit of an advisory warning. So I think we might need a little bit of an advisory warning here. Uh, warning. What you're about to hear may sound more like real life than you imagined a fish-eating man story might convey. <laughs> Listener attention is advised. All right, there's your warning. You've been warned. Jonah in dire straits. Leslie C. Allen uh, observes uh, at this point that the alternative to saying to God, thy will be done. We do that all the time. We kind of say, Lord, your will be done. Jesus did it, of course, in the garden. To hear God say, eventually to us, your will be done. Your will be done. That's a particularly terrifying place to find oneself. To find yourself in that place where God hands you over to whatever it is you're pursuing, whatever you're seeking on your own terms and on your own interest. That God gives you instruction to live a certain kind of life that certainly would offer wisdom to you and a, a place to live within the freedom of God's grace and love. And instead you say, no. I'm not going to do it. And we're, we're on our way to dire straits at that point. It's a particularly terrifying place, like I said, where we find ourselves in that place where we wallow in the sin that we so earnestly desire, and it catches up with us. 
that what comes to us in the moment is the exact consequence of our actions. And it feels like grace at that moment has been lifted from us, that we are truly at that moment God forsaken. We might imagine that Jonah here is so forsaken, that Jonah has found that place where he was seeking to escape God's presence and he gets it. That God says to him, okay, go ahead and run into that place and there you go. We might think that's where he's at. And of course, as we read the text, we see elements that tell us that that might be what's going on. He prays out in distress in the beginning of verse two. You've just been thrown in the sea. Of course, you're gonna pray in distress, right? You're drowning. This is a man who's drowning. It says in the second part of verse two, that he's deep in the realm of the dead. And the underlying word that we have translated here is actually the word for womb or belly, that he's in the, he's in the womb or the belly. And, and some folks have said, of course, because we're talking about a man and a fish. But the thing is, in verse 1, the term that's used to talk about him being inside the fish is a different word. And that here we have he's in the womb or the belly in a different kind of place, not just talking about the inside of the fish. The picture here is that Jonah is fearing that he is now gone to that place of the dead, though he's not quite dead. And that this is just not a fish, but rather he's in that place of separation from God. So it's much more deeper than just being gobbled up by this, this sea life that he sees himself. He's in a much more terrible place. In verse three, it says he was hurled into the depths. He uses this type of language in his prayer. You recall in chapter three, at that moment, Jonah's direction was given to the crew to throw them in. That was Jonah saying that. And it was the crew that prayed, saying that to God, not to hold them responsible, that it's God's will to do this. And here in our text, Jonah now observes that he knew that God was ultimately responsible for the predicament he now finds himself in. In verse 4, he says he's, he's banished from God's sight. That feeling of descending towards the watery grave. All right, These are all language of a man who's sinking further and further and further into the sea. That he's drowning. And in drowning that he would be eventually removed from God's sight on his way to the grave. He's engulfed in the waters that are threatening him in verse five. He's trapped. He can't get out of this place. He can't get out of sea. And note the latter part of the verse, that seaweed is wrapped around his head, that he, he's, he's trapped here. He can't get out. Not only is the sea holding him in, but the actual elements of the sea are pulling and holding him, again, pulling him towards that grave. He says in verse 6, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Pictured here is an ancient picture of death and a city gates being locked. And that's what he sees himself here, that the locks are going to be coming over the gates. And he's going to be stuck in the grave permanently. And then we see here, my life in verse 7 was ebbing away. The idea of someone who's growing unconscious. The air is going out of him. He begins to lose his hold on life. As he moves closer and closer to death, soon to be unconscious, he's drowning. And the imagery, again, throughout this entire prayer is of one who sees certain death being near. I'm guessing that wasn't covered in your children's Sunday school class, was it? Did you go through the states of someone drowning in Sunday school when you learned this story? Probably not. The flannel board didn't have a picture of a man drowning in the sea, at least not the one I saw. We had a fish scoop him up and that was it. But here's Jonah in chapter two, not in our sanitized version of the story where Jonah is merely cruising around in a great fish or whale, you can debate about that all you want, and that's about it. 
But pretty much the way the story is told to children is that way. But our text has a display of a man who's languishing in the depths of the grave. You don't come back from where this person is headed. And that's why this prayer begins with being in distress. And if you're not convinced that this prayer is an, is an urgent prayer of a person who's facing the most difficult place in their life, on that difficult day, if you don't, if you don't think that's what this is going to, you say, ah, no, no, come on, Jimmy. No one would ever read that chapter like that. No one would ever see that. That's too strong of a reading. Consider how Jesus looked at this same exact passage, how he talked about it when he referred to it in Matthew 12 as the sign of Jonah, when he talked about that sign. We read there in Matthew's gospel, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There Jonah, back in the Jonah story, he's relating this, this experience, this moment to him going into death, into Sheol, into that place in the earth. And Jesus draws from that same place to talk about where he will be going, where he is headed, and the sign that will be shown to validate uh, his ministry and his words. Jesus doesn't imagine himself headed to cozy accommodations. Right? He's not imagined himself at that point. And what awaits him is more akin to what we hear from the lips, lips of Jonah than the cartoonish imagery that we sometimes come up with to tell the story or to convey that story. But on the prophet's way to that deep river, you know what I mean when I say deep river? When I talk about that, you're familiar with that song, deep river? The prophet's way to that deep river, when he's on his way to that place of death, God has something else in mind. We might say at first that the prayer itself paints a picture of what the prophet sees happening in his distress. But God has something completely different in mind here in this story and what will happen here with Jonah. And we've heard that at the end of chapter one, that God sent a mode of rescue to the prophet. A strange mode of rescue, but a mode of rescue nonetheless. Note how God's rescue though is conveyed in Jonah's own prayer. It's not just the fish. The prophet is calling in distress, of course, in the beginning of verse 2. It says, God answered me. And that sense there behind that of God answering is, isn't the words there, isn't that God heard you and his ear went, oh, someone's talking over there. Or, oh, there's a sound in the air. Oh, wait, wait, is there, is there a buzz in the room? Is something on? But that God is listening, that God is actually taking in what's being said. When the prophet says that deep in the realm of the dead, in the second part of verse two, we also hear in that same verse, God listened to my cry. And when the earth beneath was on the way to barring the prophet in forever in verse six, when it looks like all hope is gone and he's now gonna be locked in there and he's never gonna come back and he's gonna to be totally outside the presence of the Lord, the text continues, you Lord my God brought my life up from the pit. The picture that is emerging here is a beautiful one, of course. The picture that we see here is a prophet who was everything prodigal. He was on the run. He wanted to get out of the presence of the Lord. That's what he wanted. And that's where he was headed. This is the insider trying to go outsider. This is a prophet who's gone completely rogue. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of this prophet who's on the run and saying, I'm out of here, we have God who is entirely faithful throughout. We see that in chapter one, and we see it again here in chapter two. There's an old preacher named G. Campbell Morgan. 
And you can tell it's an old preacher because old preachers always went by their first initial kind of thing going on, right? I would be like J. Edward McPherson or something. Doesn't feel right. But this, this gentleman who was a friend of Spurgeon, he's in that time of, of writing uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. He said this, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God, right? We've been looking at the fish so long that we miss the great God throughout this. See the great God even in the light of the insider prophet now turned bad actor. And when we see God's loving kindness, when we see God's faithfulness to covenant on full display, and we know that God is fully in charge, that Jonah has said that, that the sailors prayed for that, that the storm validates that, how can we not arrive at the claim of this prophet in verse 9, who says, and comes to this conclusion, salvation comes from the Lord. There's an old spiritual that I imagine many of us have heard at some time, and maybe we've even sung it uh, in, in some gathering. You know this one? I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. Some of you want to sing it right now, don't you? <laughs> Second verse is the same. I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. Right? Second line. I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. Singing glory, hallelujah. Jesus lifted me. And certainly there are a number of verses that accompany that first one. But Jonah here at this movement inside the fish, you think about the prayers movement from distress, it now moves to this place where Jonah is glad that the Lord has lifted him. And his language shows that. In fact, he's so glad that he commits himself to shouts of grateful praise, to sacrifices, and making good on his vows. That's a person who's completely being turned around, changed, transformed. His thinking's transformed. He was fleeing the presence of God. Now he's looking to the temple of God. He wants to get back into that presence. He doesn't want to be in that place that he hoped to find when he was running all along. Of course, verse 8, just before verse 9, is a little bit tricky for us. It could be translated in one of two ways. You could probably come up with a third way, but it would be really wacky. But one of two ways you could probably translate this as you look at the language there. It could be one that where someone is abandoning their own loyalties. And someone is saying, you know what? Uh, I, I pursued my own interests. Or it could be that they're forfeiting God's own grace. We're not quite sure what it goes there. Our translation, of course, goes with uh, the abandoning of God's grace or God's love. It's how the NRSV has tackled that. But either way, whichever way you take on that verse, and you'll see English translations that go either way, Jonah recognizes that those who are caught in the snare of idolatry, which is far different than seeking the presence of the living God, those who get snared in, in whatever it holds their fascination and their desire for worship, their great pursuit, the things that cause them to run towards those except are in objection to the presence of God. Those who get themselves caught up in those snares soon learn that these so-called interests offer no salvation in the moment of trouble. They don't save us. Our addictions, the things that we chase after to run away from God, they don't end up providing any kind of salvation to us. In fact, in many ways, they become the traps that hold us down, the seaweed around our heads. This last uh, Friday, I had the chance to hike up Mount Pilchuck. Anybody ever gone to Mount, Mount Pilchuck, done that hike? Any folks out there have done that? I had to stop a couple times on that hike. I was not in hiking condition. I had to ask myself some serious questions. Like, seriously, Jimmy, what are you doing right now? I remember I paused and a couple times going up, I had a chance to go up with one of my brothers and uh, we had a great experience getting to the top, great view. But then coming down, I remember at one moment as we came down that mountain, uh, everything was going good. We hiked up, no one got injured. 
But as we came down, I was stepping down in a field of rocks, and the rock I stepped on moved. You ever had that experience going downhill, or you step on a rock that moves, and then you move. Usually not the way you were hoping. <laughs> I kind of took a little bit of a tumble, and thankfully I had an algae bottle on the outside of my pack that caught the rock and kept me from totally going over on my head. But that sense of losing footing is not just for mountains. It's not just when we walk down on, on recreational pursuits. Some of us live in that place even now that we've lost our footing, that we're not on the secure footing that we once enjoyed in Jesus Christ, that somehow we found ourselves maybe like the prophet Jonah and we're running in a direction that is not the direction that's towards the presence of God, but it's one that's trying to get ourselves out of town. We want to get out of Dodge. We want to get away from the presence of God. And our footing is insecure, and you may be at that place where you feel like you are actually falling. And sometimes we use that imagery when we talk about folks that have lost their footing in their discipleship, that they've fallen. Well, this morning, uh, as I close here, I want us to take a moment and pause and think about the life that God extends to you and to me. I, of course, grew up in a Christian culture where preachers and evangelists uh, would oftentimes challenge hearers with a question. And I'm not going to challenge you with the question this morning because I think that the question's all wrong. But here's what was what was challenged. It usually came in a, the version of if you were to die after you got in your car and drove home or got a ride home or even this evening as you went to sleep, where would you find yourself in the afterlife? Just imagine a nine-year-old kid hearing that kind of thing and going, what? <laughs> I'm going to die tonight? Like I said, I don't think it's the right question. Of course, kids in that group would respond to that. I would respond to that myself out of fear and terror. Somehow that I was not right with God, that God would dispossess me and that I would be left for dead. That I need to get right immediately. I got to take action and I have to do all the heavy lifting. Alongside this, there was a second question that was often asked that said, if you did die and you found yourself before a holy God, what would you say? How would you give an account of your life? And again, to a nine-year-old kid, a terrifying picture. Say, I don't know, I'm, I'm already shy. I don't, I don't, what would I say to anyone, let alone the, a holy, eternal God? And I had no answers. And of course, they'd promptly provide you with some answers that you could share. But let me paint a different picture than the fear questions. Because there's something far better that God extends to us. And it's extended to us here in this prayer to Jonah. It's something that we discover throughout the scriptures. And it's not something that's about manipulation and fear. It's not that at all. That's why I say those questions are inappropriate. But imagine a different kind of love. Imagine a different kind of love from a different kind of God. A love that's extended to you, a faithfulness that's shown, even when you're the insider, when you've received the instruction, but yet you still go rogue, that this God still loves you and takes action on your behalf. That a child, as a child who abandons their family, who runs away from their spiritual family and says, I want nothing to do with that, or I don't even want anything to do with my role as a prophet, that that same God shows faithfulness and love to you in that moment. Even as you leave your first love and abandon that, that God still pursues you and still welcomes you home. Instead of guilting our way to respond, God's grace reminds us that we do belong, that we're beloved children, beloved children who are welcomed home by a loving father who embraces us, and even while we're still a long way off, comes running for us. That's what Jonah discovered. That's what Jonah discovered inside the fish, 
that he was near death, a very painful death in, in drowning, but yet God went after him and pursued him. Even when he was running away, God pursues him even to the sea and provides a fish to save his life. And in that moment, Jonah recognized that salvation wasn't only for everyone, but salvation was for him as well. Friends, as we go through the coming days, may we also remember that God's salvation is for each one of us, that you are welcome at this table, but even more that you're welcomed in the presence of God, who is present to us now, who loves you and offers you salvation this day and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us